Hello and welcome to another episode of Media Files. I'm Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University, flying solo on this occasion without my co-hosts, Andrea Carson and Andrew Dodd, both overseas for their universities at present. One of the most important stories of the past year, from a range of perspectives, including the media, has been the trial of Cardinal George Pell on charges of sexual assault of two children at St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1995. Pell, who was formerly Archbishop of Melbourne and more recently in a very senior role as a clerical figure in the Vatican, was found guilty of these charges late last year and his appeal is being set down to be heard early in June. I thought it was timely to have a look at what is at stake not only in that particular appeal, but what has been less well canvassed is the fact that the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse had a lot of material about both what had been happening in the Catholic Church and what had been happening in particular specific case files that they looked at, all of which involved uh, Cardinal Pell, most of which has not been made public as yet because the Commission made the decision to allow any particular legal processes that were going to be brought against Cardinal Pell to be exhausted, all of the appeal processes to be exhausted before they would release these final findings. And I thought the person who would best be able to help us on this is Louise Milligan, who's a journalist with the ABC, who's written a book about uh, George Pell called Cardinal. She's won numerous awards for that, including the uh, Walkley Book Award a couple of years ago. And this goes through Cardinal Pell's life, his his early years, his more recent years, and goes through a number of the allegations against him, both those that have been now heard in court and a range of others. And so I've asked Louise to come in today to talk to us about that. And in a sense, to go through with us, what are we likely to find out when the appeal processes are finally concluded? Thanks, Matthew. So the report was released in September 2017 and it had a number of findings across the Catholic Church and other religious institutions and other institutions as well. There are large redacted sections and many of those large redacted sections seem to refer to George Pell. Now, George Pell does actually appear in this report He is talked about when they're talking about things that are relatively uncontroversial. So am I right that the the Royal Commission didn't make any actual findings about Cardinal Pell in the report itself to do with his management of the Melbourne response, for example, or things like that? Is that redacted as well? Anything that they consider might have poisoned the minds of the jury in his trial or trials as it was to be they have taken out. So, you know, there's stuff where it's talking about his history, the fact that he was the Episcopal Vicar for Education in Ballarat, for instance, and he was on the College of Consultors, which was the College of um, Priests, which helped the then Bishop of Ballarat, Mulkerns, uh, Ronald Mulkerns, make decisions about priestly movements. Um, So they do sort of go into that, But as soon as anything is potentially controversial, they step back. And so I think we can glean from the number of redactions and where they are placed in the report 
that there are findings that are not favourable to George Pell. Now, the other thing is, like, if you read between the lines, you see what they've said about, for example, other consultors on, on that committee. Now just remind us, what, what is a consultor in this sense? What was their role? What so did they it, do? it was a committee of priests that uh, helped advise the bishop on personnel movements of priests. They were sort of senior priests in the diocese. Okay. And this becomes crucial because one of the issues is that priests who were accused of, of abusing children were simply being moved from one diocese to another and, and the problem was not being solved. That was the issue, isn't it? Yes, most notoriously in the case of Gerald Ridsdale, yeah. who abused dozens and dozens of children in the Ballarat Diocese over decades. The Royal Commission found that the first Bishop of Ballarat, uh, O'Collins, to find out about Ridsdale's offending, that happened in the 1960s, but he didn't leave until the 1990s. So, you know, it's this massive career of offending. Now, there's a very important point at which he's moved from parish to parish in the 1970s. And George Pell was one of these consultors. They began moving him in 1975. He was taken from the parish of Inglewood in the middle of the night. There was, you know, there were rumours all over town. George Pell at that time wasn't on the committee of consultors, but he joined in 1977. And if you read what the Commission has found about the other consultors and about Mulkern's thinking, it's pretty clear that <laughs> they don't believe Pell's evidence because right. Pell's evidence is essentially Mulkern's never told us anything. He deceived us. He deliberately deceived us. It's absolutely terrible what he did and how could he do this? And it's on the record that a number of the other consultors did know. We have written evidence of that. So there was a Monsignor Fiscalini who was a great friend of George Pell's mother. There was Hank Nolan, who was George Pell's cousin. There was Brian Finnegan, who later became a bishop in Brisbane. And he was also, like Pell said, a lifelong friend of his. So these people were on the record as knowing the Commission has found that others knew too and didn't believe their evidence. I mean, it makes very, very unequivocal comments about that. You know, for instance, it says the church parties submitted that there is no evidence that either before or at one of these meetings, any of the attendees other than Bishop Mulkerns knew of the suspected offending of Ridsdale. And then it's this big blank section. <laughs> but it, it does say, for instance, that they accept the evidence of one of the priests whose name was Father Melican, who admitted that the reason that Ridsdale was moving was to keep him away from kids. It's, it's like a kind of ticking time bomb in, a, in some ways for Cardinal Pell. I must emphasise at present we are talking about things that are not about the matters that are going to be heard in the appeal next week. One of the things that's happened, in, if you like, in the media debate since we became aware, the public became aware of the, of the guilty finding against George Pell is that there's been a conscious effort to narrow the frame of the debate to simply a question of whether George Pell is guilty or not guilty of these particular offences that he was found guilty of by a jury of his peers. And as you know only too well, that the jury and the judge uh, and the counsel for both the plaintiff and the defendants are the only people who actually heard the witness's evidence, like you didn't, I didn't, 
the general public, the commentators, none of them have heard it. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about all this other material which is in the Royal Commission's report, which I mean, you've been through a lot of it, but it's it's an enormous amount of material and it's that's huge. one of the issues, isn't it? That yeah. it's so comprehensive and that's a great service to the to the nation. And it's so comprehensive that it makes it difficult to kind of grapple with. The report is, I mean, I think the report on the Catholic Church is hundreds of pages, but then there are also individual reports on case studies. The Case 28 case study, which is Ballarat, 34, which is Melbourne, they're the ones that refer to George Pell. But, you know, just going back to the the consultors thing, they say we do not accept that Bishop Mulkerns lied to his consultors. And George Pell said he did. He's one of the consultors, and and there aren't very many of them left. A few a few of them have, um, well, at least one of them's died since the Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. Brian Finnegan, the bishop in Brisbane, auxiliary bishop, has stepped down. There's another one who is a former priest. He's no longer a priest. So, you know, George Pell is definitely the most high profile of these people left. Bishop Mulkerns died during the Royal Commission. And that's the point. They find that they don't accept these guys' evidence. But really, in the grand scheme of things, they're either dead or they're minnows. This person is the third most senior person in the Vatican. And this is not an isolated incident in the sense that as you've tracked in your book about George Pell, this is someone who doesn't simply remain at the consultor level. This is someone who goes on to become a very, very powerful figure in the Catholic Church and a very influential figure and a figure within whose power it was to do something or not about the scourge of child sexual abuse in the, within the church. And he has often minimised the role of the Catholic Church in this institutional abuse issue. You know, mm-hmm. we're not the only cab on the ranks sort of thing. But it's important and instructive to point out that of the reports of abuse in religious institutions reported to the Royal Commission, 61.8% of those were about Catholic clergy or lay people. Now, Catholics make up 22% of the population. The next one down is the Anglican Church, 14.7% of the complaints, 13.3% of the population. So they're about at population, whereas the Catholics are three times population. Now, if, if I could channel my inner Jared Henderson at this point, I think what he would say is, or what he has said, is that one of the reasons for this seemingly disproportionate number is that the Catholic footprint, if you like, across the nation in terms of its schools, hospitals, uh, institutions, etc., is so much larger than other churches. That doesn't make up for the fact (laughs) that there are huge numbers who have made complaints about these institutions. Just because you've got a big footprint doesn't mean you can say it's not a problem. You know? Indeed. It's 4,444 complaints. That's staggering. (laughs) It is. No, no, it is. So the first issue is the issue to do with the consultors. That's one. What's what's the next issue, if you like, that would come out? The issue at Doveton. So and this is when George Pell is a far more senior priest. So that that related to the late seventies and early eighties. This relates to when he's auxiliary bishop in Melbourne. Auxiliary bishop is like second bishop. Yeah, so it's archbishop and then there's then in an archdiocese you have auxiliary bishops who look after regions and he was the southeastern region of Melbourne. 
of which Doveton out near Dandenong was one of the parishes. And at Doveton there was a terrible creature called Peter Searson who just wreaked havoc at that parish for, you know, 12 years. He abused a little girl called Julie Stewart in the mid-1980s in the confessional and there were a number of other complaints made about him in the 80s and 90s and delegations to the bishop, to the vicar general. It was clear from the minutes of the curia that the curia knew about him, the Catholic education office knew about him, the principal of the school was basically driven out of his job because of him and yet they kept him on. Now, one of the cases is a a delegation of teachers who go to George Pell as auxiliary bishop about a list of complaints. Now, unfortunately, they sort of minimise is not the word, but they skirt around the issue a little bit. But there is a lot of weird stuff in it. It's things like hanging around the kids' toilets and, you know, stabbing a bird in front of the kids and, you know, just really weird stuff. And it can't be seen in isolation because there were other people getting these complaints as well. Now, the commission says the case of Father Searson is remarkable in terms of the volume of complaints against him and the number of Catholic Church personnel to whom they were made. It was right up to the Archbishop and George Pell, you know, as well, and he enjoyed a level of infamy within the parish, according to some witnesses. It's extraordinary that there was such a long period of inaction given the number of individual Catholic Church personnel with the knowledge of the complaints against Searson. So there are long sections in the Searson part of the Archdiocese of Melbourne section of the Catholic Church's report that are blanked out. Now, as far as I'm aware, the only person who was before the courts in relation to that issue at the time was George Pell. And as I say, in other situations, they mention George Pell. So if they're blanked out, and it's at the time when you would be expecting them to talk about the delegation, for instance. So if it's blanked out, that suggests that, again, it's not positive for George Pell. Now, this doesn't mean that the Royal Commission is going to say, for instance, that George Pell should be prosecuted under, you know, the new knowledge offences that the Victorian government brought in. If the Royal Commission did make any recommendations of that nature to Victoria Police or the Office of Public Prosecutions, they would have done so in secret. That was just the way that they operated. I'm not quite sure the reasons for that, but they did confirm that to me at the time. But if you look at counsel assisting Gail Finesse's final submissions in relation to this and the Ballarat-Ridsdale situation, she doesn't believe Pell's evidence. I mean, his evidence in relation to what happened in Doveton was that there was a vast conspiracy of people who were colluding to cover something up from him because they thought that he would do something about it, which is just frankly hilarious because he has absolutely no record before that time of showing that he might be someone who would, would do anything. On this issue. He he relies on the fact that he set up the Melbourne response 
but that's later. Later, exactly. And that's another issue which we'll come to because that's not by any means uncontested, his perspective on the Melbourne response. I mean, the Royal Commission's view of the Melbourne response is, is pretty grim. You know, you just have to look at the Melbourne response, the fact that this is a scheme that is set up three months after he becomes Archbishop in 1996. It's a scheme for Victoria, well, for the Melbourne Archdiocese only, because the rest of the country, the bishops from the rest of the country, had been working for years to put together another scheme called Towards Healing. And as I write in my book, George Pell gazumped them and they were furious about it. And there were arguments on the floor of the bishops' conference about this. And his scheme brought in a cap of $50,000, which didn't exist with Towards Healing. And it had a number of problems. For example, it was set up by his solicitors. So the same people who are acting for the Catholic Church in civil claims against the church in relation to these sexual abuse matters, most notoriously with a foster family, Chrissy and Anthony and their daughters who had a tragic situation, And at the same time, they have access to the um, counselling reports through the Melbourne response. The Catholic Church would say, if you accept this ex gratia payment through the Melbourne response, let's say $25,000, which is a pretty normal amount of money that you would get, we will give you a letter and George Pell will sign it, apologising for what happened to you and you can get counselling. And then off you go, but you need to sign a deed of release. Which meant, didn't it, that you couldn't say anything publicly about... Well, it was interpreted as that. There's been conjecture about that in the Royal Commission, but certainly the victims and their families thought that that's what it meant. So if you take this money, this small amount of money, we'll say sorry, but for the same abuse, if you fight us in a court of law, we will strenuously defend it. So it doesn't exist for $750,000. So the towards healing process, that was going to have a, a higher cap yes. on payment. How was it going to deal with survivors and victims of abuse in terms of whether they were able to speak about it, if they wished to? It was considered more pastoral in its approach. Okay. Yeah. Rather than legalistic, which was what has been said of... Or- of the Melbourne response. And the other thing was that the Melbourne response, the survivors... Uh, would meet with a QC appointed by the church, a special commissioner, in his office, which the commission found, you know, that that was very intimidating for them. There, there was this huge power imbalance. And, and look, the point is it's set up by the solicitors for the church who are defending the church in actions against the church. Uh, that did not exist with Towards Healing. That was that was a church-led process set up by Bishop Geoffrey Robinson. And more pastorally oriented. Yeah. I mean, look, it had lots of flaws. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But um, the Melbourne response has come in for particular criticism. All right. Even so, or even taking all that into account, that was the mid-1990s and what you had been talking about just before that was things that were occurring well before that. The argument that George Pell put to the commission that that there was either a massive conspiracy or that he was someone who not be told things because he was famous for someone who would speak his own mind. The countervailing view that is put in your book is that he actually was more, if you like, an operator within the church, a fixer who would go and actually deal with issues. So a sort of an inside man rather rather than a gadfly, if you like. 
I mean, the thing about George Pell is he's someone who prides himself on being a mover and shaker. He's a fiercely or was a fiercely ambitious man. That is not the sort of person who doesn't know what's going on. And his whole idea, I mean, one of the things, and I suspect one of the redacted sections deals with this issue, one of the things he talked about was, you know, that priests don't gossip. It's just like I spent months gossiping on the phone to priests. They love gossiping. Well, and and they're not they're not abnormal there. I mean, most no. you know the idea that gossip is some rarefied thing that not many people engage in is a slightly bizarre idea, isn't it? Well, I, I guess you know his sort of view is this very clericalist model mm. that you know we are holier We're... than that. But um, I, I I just don't buy that for a second. Were there any points in the report that you've read where they've found in his favour in that? sense where they've said either he did this well or they've exonerated him from this allegation? No, no, not that I've seen. It's all been more neutral. It's an enormous report and I haven't seen every single thing. And maybe in the redacted sections, it's too hard to unpick the positive bits. So there could be positive thrown within the negative. Yes. But I mean, and you know, this is all speculation, but you just look at the pattern of the report it seems inconceivable to me, given that there is a lot of neutral stuff there, that they're blacking it out because it's problematic for him. Just looking at the Commission's report more broadly, it really does reject George Pell's conception of the faith, which is a clericalist model. Okay. And Just explain that a little bit for Yeah. Us. So clericalism is the idea that the priests know better. Like this is in the absolute lay terms that parishioners should look to priests for moral guidance in the world. And at its worst, it creates a clubbish mentality, which means that when those people are under siege, they stick together. And on page 43 of the report, they're quite critical of clericalism as a model and they say that the clericalist model meant that some bishops and superiors identified more with the perpetrators than the victims or the families. You know, and they said that some candidates for leadership positions had been selected on the basis of their adherence to specific aspects of church doctrine and their commitment to defence of the Catholic Church rather than their capacity for leadership. And, you know, I would add also rather than their capacity for empathy. Hmm. There was an extraordinary lack of empathy shown by this class of individuals over decades. And what was the effect of that? Little kids got thrown under the bus. And most uh, famously, that that's what happened to the Foster family, Chrissy and Anthony Foster, that they went to see George Pell and they were appalled by the way in which he received them. Yes, he said um, they showed him a picture of um, their daughter who had attempted suicide. She later died. And he looked at the photo and said, oh, she's changed. And, you know, Anthony Foster who unfortunately died in in May 2017, famously described Pell's response as demonstrating a sociopathic lack of empathy. It's a very strong word really, isn't it? It is. He, He said it in the Victorian parliamentary inquiry because he would have parliamentary privilege so he could say something as robust as that and it was a very brave thing to say at the time because Cardinal Pell was still at the height of his powers at that time. 
it's just, yeah, it's surprising to me that, you know, the Royal Commission spent five years very carefully and painstakingly going through huge volumes of evidence and particularly in relation to this. I know because I went through that evidence and looked at what all the other people knew and talked about that in my book and I, I noticed that they make they seem to make similar types of conclusions that I did. So that's gratifying. But for some people, for some reason, it does not matter what is thrown at this man. They cannot believe that he is anything but an exemplary human. So just in terms of the the way in which that, okay, if we go back to when the Royal Commission handed down its report, it was huge amount of both admiration for the work that they had done and a lot of discussion about what they'd found and and the fact that we now knew for certain by dint of a great deal of a base of research. The tone of the way in which that report was received in the broad media and in the broad public was very positive in my memory. And yet we move forward to early 2019 and the response is quite different. It's cleaved and there are clearly people who are saying, yes, this this is what's been found. But I'm just curious about your view about that. Yeah. Well, can I say, first of all, that the people who have loudly proclaimed George Pell's innocence are still a minority. They just happen to have bigger voices. They just happen to hold positions of power. They're pretty much, no offence to present company, but they're pretty much all white, middle-class, powerful, older men. Yes, yes, they are. I think Miranda Devine's the only exception to that. And they're people who knew him because he courted people like that. So they have loud voices. But, you know, I have received over the two and a bit years since my book first came out, I've received hundreds of letters, emails, text messages, Twitter messages, Facebook messages, you name it. And I would say 99% of those have been supportive of what I have done. You know, there's a small minority who are very strong adherents to the Catholic faith, and I think they find it really, really hard. I, I wouldn't say that they troll me. I would say that they just can't bring themselves to to believe this. Then there are these weird trolls who have a whole lot of numbers after their names. And some of them as well as sort of like people who think that somehow this is some sort of attack on conservatism because George Pell's a conservative. I mean, even some high-profile media commentators, including Jared Henderson, have said that, which I just find bizarre because it's not about left or right politics. It's about child protection or lack thereof. And, you know, what does the Royal Commission say about the Catholic Church, which he was at the very top of in Australia? It says, in its responses to child sexual abuse, the leadership of the Catholic Church has failed the people of the Catholic Church in Australia, in particular its children. The results of that failure have been catastrophic. And he has not owned that. And nor indeed of people like Jared Henderson. They just keep trying to sort of querulously find the little chinks in the armour. I mean, you would think that the abuse of children would be, it's clearly not an apolitical act or is it not a left-right act because everything is political, but innocent children being abused, you'd think that everyone would say that's an appalling thing, that is something we need to prevent, to stop, to act upon, etc. And yet this weird 
outbreak of the culture wars has occurred on the back of this uh, ju- or back of the judgment back in a couple of months ago. If we were talking about in that case a couple of months ago, uh, a Muslim cleric with two young boys, I suspect that we would have heard universal condemnation coming from those very same voices. If it was a rabbi, I think we probably wouldn't have heard much at all. People would have accepted the decision of the jury. And, you know, the fact that there's an appeal, there's a sense of just appeal your way out of things, you know, that hasn't been the case with other criminal convictions where a jury has made a decision. Every criminal has the right to appeal and any criminal with resources does so. But that doesn't mean that the jury decision is automatically invalidated or somehow a temporary decision until we arrive at the next one. A lot of the commentary from the leadership of the Catholic Church, for instance, has been, oh, we must accept uh, the will of the court, wait till the appeal, you know. You just haven't heard this with other criminal cases. Murderers, for instance. Yes. The person is a convicted murderer at that point if they are convicted and then if they appeal and it changes, okay, it changes. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for coming in and helping us find our way through this. Uh, I think it's a case of, of watch this space, but I would also, and I imagine you would too, encourage people to go and have a look at the Royal Commission's work because it's still all available online. Yeah, it's a fascinating document. It really is. It's also, you know... Or documents. Yeah, lots and lots of documents. (laughs) Strap yourself in, people. But, um, you know, it's fascinating, but it's also, it's Australia's shame that, that this happened. Absolutely. And we need to not forget, you know, because if you brush this sort of history under the carpet then those mistakes might well be repeated and they can't be repeated because I can tell you I've been wading through the sadness created by this situation for the past few years and it is appalling. Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Louise. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew. 